You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. As national security threats continue to evolve around the globe, the importance of effective surveillance tools cannot be overstated. One such tool is Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, which in short allows national security agencies to gather intelligence on foreign threats. With 702 set to expire later this year, the debate over whether to reauthorize this framework has proven divisive. Today, we're airing our recent live event featuring April Doss, General Counsel at the NSA. Together with Harvey Rishikoff, April discusses the importance of this framework, how we use it in practice, and why reauthorization is critical to our national security. For more information on Section 702, check out the links in our description. And thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everybody. It is such a pleasure to be here. It's a privilege to be here. Glenn, thank you for that kind introduction. And Harvey and Holly, thank you both so much. Before I launch into prepared remarks or conversation, I've been reading the news, like everybody else. It won't surprise you to know that I'm not able to comment on any of the current events that are going on, but I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to talk about 702. So without further ado, I want to take just a minute to set the backdrop for this conversation. NSA has two missions, cybersecurity and signals intelligence. With respect to our intelligence mission, we are a foreign intelligence agency. Our role is to stand at the shores of the nation and look out. And what we do is we look out for indications, threats, warnings, anything that is of interest to senior policymakers in the U.S. government, anything that indicates, that is responsive to those key intelligence questions that are presented to NSA and to the rest of the intelligence community to answer. And Section 702 is a vital authority in doing that. In fact, it's indispensable. As we do that, when we think about what those key intelligence questions are, our SIGINT mission encompasses using electronic surveillance to collect information about the capabilities, intentions, and activities of hostile foreign powers, international terrorist groups, malicious cyber actors, and other foreign entities or agents of foreign powers who may wish harm to the U.S or whose actions may in some way implicate the interests of the U.S. government and our allies. As we do that, we are devoted to protecting the privacy and civil liberties of U.S. persons, of persons in the U.S., and of U.S. persons everywhere in the world. And as many of you know, through Executive Order 14086 that was recently signed, we extend the same protections by policy to non-U.S. persons. So our commitment to civil liberties and privacy runs as deep as our devotion to duty does. So let's talk a little bit about 702. Section 702 is, as I mentioned, absolutely indispensable. It is the indispensable second authority that NSA has used since 2008 to acquire foreign intelligence information. It's been integral to exposing terrorist plots, thwarting the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uncovering espionage plots to obtain sensitive U.S. technological information, and finding the source of cyber attacks that impact U.S. victims. It's provided vital intelligence regarding the most significant foreign intelligence threats to the U.S. and her allies. We've used 702 to prevent weapons components from reaching hostile foreign actors. We've identified threats to U.S. troops. We've discovered sanctions evasions. We've disrupted foreign cyber attacks. It's helped us understand the strategic intentions of the foreign governments we're most interested in, the People's Republic of China, 
Russia, North Korea, Iran. This authority has saved American lives. And let me just say that again. This authority has saved lives. There's no way to overstate the importance of this. 702 is often thought of as being expansive. Um, the cartoon of it is that it, we are hoovering up the internet. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is focused and limited, but it is also agile enough to address national security threats in an ever-changing technological environment. 702 provides a court-supervised regime that permits the intelligence community to obtain compelled assistance of US-based electronic communication service providers to target foreign persons located outside the US who possess or are expected to communicate foreign intelligence information that satisfies those carefully vetted intelligence requirements of US policymakers. And it is the legal authority underpinning some of our most crucial intelligence successes. When Congress passed 702, it incorporated civil liberties protections within the structure of the law itself. And at NSA, we do the same thing, and we do it every day. We do it with devotion, we do it with care, we do it out of a sense of responsibility, a sense of commitment, and a sense of duty. The practices that make for effective intelligence analysis are largely the same practices that make for robust protection of privacy and civil liberties. We often hear about privacy and security as being in balance or in tension with each other. Really, they are woven together. Privacy on the one hand and security on the other form sort of the warp and weft of the fabric of national security. For example, when NSA analysts nominate a selector for targeting, they have to articulate why they believe the proposed target is a non-US person outside the US, why they believe the targeting will yield foreign intelligence information, what the intelligence requirements are that it responds to, which 702 certification is relevant to, and they have to provide sourcing to specific evidence underpinning those foreignness determinations and foreign intelligence justifications. So that targeting nomination that goes through multiple layers of review before the targeting is approved, that review supports both the work and the weft of the program. It supports the foreign intelligence precision that enables us to do foreign intelligence well. And it promotes and supports the protection of privacy and civil liberties because of the care and attention that we're taking to how we go about using this authority. As Congress considers 702 for reauthorization, as you all know, the authority sunsets this year, if not reauthorized, it's incumbent on the IC to demonstrate to the American people, to our overseers, to members of Congress, that NSA's activities pursuant to 702 deserve their trust. So we have to show and explain how the government not only strives to achieve national security interests, but how the protection of constitutional rights and civil liberties is woven into the fabric of how we use the authority. You all are familiar with the incredibly robust structural protections for this program. It's overseen by a court. It's overseen by the executive branch. It's overseen by Congress. And this statute has some of the most forward-leaning transparency provisions of any national security authority in history. And I dare say around the world, I do not believe there is any foreign government that is more transparent in how any of its national security activities are carried out than we are. There is extraordinary transparency around this authority, and that's as it should be. As we look at how we operate within this really robust culture, structure of compliance, one of the things that we have taken pains to cultivate at NSA is a culture of compliance that goes along with that. The anecdote that most stands out in my mind in that regard 
if you'll indulge me for a moment, goes back to 2005 when I was in my second job at the National Security Agency, and I was working in the Intelligence Law Division of the Office of General Counsel, the one that I would later have the privilege to lead. And um, in my first day on the job, the person who was at the time the head of that unit handed me a whole stack of paper-bound volumes from the government printing office and said, here, I want you to start by reading these. And what he had me read were the Church and Pike Committee proceedings, particularly the volume that had to do with NSA. Now, that was my experience, but stories like that. You might want to explain the Church and Pike. Uh, we have lost and weren't born at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. None of us were born when the Constitution was written, and we all know about the Fourth Amendment, right? Yes, but the Church and Pike Committee is particularly relevant to this reauthorization discussion because. For those of you all who are familiar with it, those hearings in the 1970s that looked at abuses by the intelligence community paved the way for the, the entire national security framework we have today to include executive order 1243, to include the creation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and establishment of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and the creation of the two standing intelligence oversight committees that we have in the Senate and the House. So, so this reauthorization debate really flows in an unbroken line, if you will, of very nearly a half a century of history of examination of the protections being afforded to US persons in the national security context. So having now diverted entirely from the pre-prepared remarks, let me, let me just take, because we're an APA event, let me take this moment to talk about the role of attorneys of the National Security Agency. Um, and there's a handful of, of us here in the room today. As a member of the bar, as someone who has sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution, as an officer of the court, there is nothing I take more seriously than my obligation to the rule of law and to all of the commitments that underpin it and to the daily actions that help support it. And that is the approach that all of us take in the National Security Agency Office of General Counsel. And more broadly, in the National Security Agency writ large, we are all Americans first. We have all taken an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, to include the Fourth Amendment. And we all take that solemn obligation seriously as we go about looking at how our actions can protect the breadth of American interests, the American interest in national security for the US and her allies, and the American interest in the protection of privacy and civil liberties. So let me pause there, because I'm really looking forward to this conversation about the reauthorization of, let me say it again, this vitally important provision of law that has absolutely saved American lives and that is indispensable to our security going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much, April. Um, so one of the issues that came up, I was with Matt Olson when the report came out on uh, transparency, the ninth report entitled uh, Annual Statistical Transparency Report. And it caused quite a stir in San Francisco. And the executive summary laid out the number of, quote, queries. And there seemed to be a reasonable amount coming from um, the agencies and NCTC, but the Bureau's queries were over three million, three. And one of the issues became how does one understand the concept of query? And is the concept of query shared across the agencies or are they done differently? So I think the audience would like to know your sort of understanding of what that means, quote, a query, 
and why the numbers seem so extraordinary with the Bureau, our former agency, despite myself, versus the other agencies? Yeah, it's a great question. And first, for a bit of framing, for those who might not already be familiar with it, Harvey's referring to the ASTR, the Annual Statistical Transparency Report. It's issued every year. If you go to the ODNI website, I see on the record, you will find a wealth of public information that is all unclassified relating to this authority. And these annual reports are one of them. And as you would imagine from the name, Annual Statistical Transparency Report, it is full of statistics about the use of 702. So when I work to Curie's, of course, I can't speak to the, to the practices of the FBI. My perspective, if you will, is defined by my role at the NSA. However, what I can talk about is queries in general and how those work. 702 allows the government to compel assistance from providers to obtain information from those non-US persons overseas who are believed to possess, communicate, or receive foreign intelligence information. That's the starting point. That is targeting in the rubric of 702. And the ASTR contains information about targeting as well. After data is collected, then the agencies, as you would imagine, need a way to look through it and find the information that is of interest, that is responsive to those foreign intelligence requirements. And that process is referred to as queries. Some of you all who have um, who spent a lot of time with this authority know that in the most recent reauthorization, Congress specifically implemented a requirement that each agency have query procedures that govern precisely how queries can be carried out. So imagine, if you will, that NSA or the Bureau or a CIA or NCTC now has a pool of collected information and needs to look within that information to identify the information that is, is responsive to those foreign intelligence needs that, is, that might end up being captured in an intelligence report. Querying is the process of looking through that data. And the particular area of focus that's highlighted in the ASTR has to do with US person queries, because of course, those raise a heightened set of concerns around privacy and civil liberties within the US context. And so there's detailed reporting on the number of queries and the number of query terms that are approved and that kind of thing. And yes, you will see that, that the FBI has a significantly higher number of queries than the other agencies do. And if you look at the public remarks of officials from the Bureau, you will see that, that they point to the FBI's dual role in doing intelligence and law enforcement. Um, and you'll also see that those FBI officials have spoken to some of the internal process improvements that they are making in order to reduce those numbers. Again, it's not really in my purview to speak to those things, but I would highlight those for your attention. Maybe that helps in sort of articulating how the query process works. Yeah, I think people think if there was a standardization across the IC on the query process, would help understand why there's a variance in the numbers of how things are being counted. The other question which you sort of alluded to is that one of the issues that we're constantly looking at in the context of your authorization is the counting of the number of U.S. persons whose information has been incidentally collected. What can we do about that and what is your sense of what the community's issue, because that's another hot button issue for the privacy community. Yeah, this has been a long-standing challenge. Think for a moment about what I said a few minutes ago. NSA stands at the shores of the nation and looks out. We are a foreign intelligence agency. When we are collecting information under 702, when anybody is, any of those four agencies are collecting information under 702, 
It is targeting of non-US people outside the US who are believed to possess or communicate foreign intelligence information. So how do US persons get into this at all? It's a really important question. And the answer is what we call incidental collection. So the statute flatly prohibits targeting of US persons. And it also prohibits reverse targeting, which is when theoretically an intelligence agency is interested in a US person but is kind of trying to collect on a foreign person to get information about the US person, that is flatly prohibited. Under the statute, categorically, there is no intentional targeting of US persons under Section 702. However, in the course of collecting information from foreign intelligence targets, it won't surprise you to imagine that there are times when a foreign intelligence target has a communication with a US person. We're not targeting the US person. We're not interested in the communications of, in the, of the US person. We're interested in the foreign intelligence that can be gained from the foreign intelligence target. But on those occasions where that foreign intelligence target is in communication with the US person and that is collected in the process, that is what incidental collection is. And one thing that's important to highlight in this context is that doesn't mean that that results in the collection of all the communications of that US person. It's only the specific communications that they've had with that foreign target, right? So what do we do about figuring out how much that happens? This has been a challenge and a conundrum for the intelligence community for years. And the NSA has devoted enormous amounts of effort and energy in trying to look at ways to estimate the, the scope of incidental US person collection. So far, we have not been able to solve that problem. We have not been able to identify an approach that meets that challenge. And the reason is because to try to count or estimate the number of US person incidental queries, excuse me, incidental collection rather, risks being intrusive of US person privacy. Because again, think about what that incidental collection is. There's a foreign target who happens to have spoken with or communicated in some way a US person. If once we've collected that data, we run queries, we identify the information from that foreign target, we might never have reason to see the particular communication with the US person. In other words, it might go unreviewed altogether if that communication isn't salient in some way. Second, we might be looking at a communication between a target and an unknown entity. And think about this for a moment. Here's what NSA should not do, does not do, what I think nobody in this room would want us to do. We don't maintain a listing of all the US person identifiers to compare with communicants with our targets, right? If you think about that. So the challenge has been, how do you look for communications that are potentially of a US person that might not have any intelligence value, that were collected incidentally, that were not the purpose of the communication, confirm that in fact they are indeed or appear to be a US person. How do you do that in a way that is not in itself privacy intrusive? That has been the challenge. So um, again, we've, we've looked many times in many ways over the years at how to do this. And we understand absolutely why it is a question that many in the privacy and civil liberties community would really like to see answered. And we welcome all the conversations around different ways that to potentially approach this problem. But that is the heart of the challenge, is finding a way to do that estimation of incidental collection without being privacy intrusive.
Moving on, one of the issues though is the criticism made about the bulk collection, the amount of data and the retention issue and then the dissemination issue. So can you make the room understand your perspective on the size of the data, how it's retained and how it's disseminated? That's what people I think are really interested in and your understanding of that safeguard. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I recognize that um, there's often this sense that, you know, cartooning things a bit NSA just to us up the internet. Um, and I can assure you we don't. And I can assure you that 702 does not allow us to. And in fact, all of the collection that happens under 702 is targeted with precision, with accuracy, and with a specific focus on tangible foreign intelligence priorities and goals. That said, in the ASTR, that Statistical Transparency Report, you will see the numbers of targets of the intelligence community annually. It is a large number. However, it is also proportionately a tiny, tiny percentage of users of the internet. So it is, it is a very small proportion of the internet. It is nonetheless a large number. But let me talk about why the targeting why it's appropriate to have some confidence in the precision of the targeting. I alluded to this earlier, but I'll just go into a little more depth. NSA's intelligence activities start with the National Intelligence Priorities Framework, which is the executive branch's articulation of what those foreign intelligence goals are. From the NIPF, there is a translation to NSA of what its SIGINT priorities are, what to collect uh, through signals intelligence in support of those national intelligence goals. As we look at those, we look at authorities like 702 to determine what 702 will allow us to do in, in meeting those goals. When an analyst believes that there is a selector that might be suitable for targeting under 702, they start with that research I talked about. They start with looking at what is known in order to meet the requirements of that foreignness justification. What is known in order to articulate why we believe that this particular targeting will lead to foreign intelligence information. Once that selector has been suggested as a candidate, it goes through multiple layers of review before it can be put on tasking. And then once the data is collected, because you asked about targeting, querying, and dissemination, once we have the data in the door, then every query gets logged, it is subject to audit. All of the queries that are audit, audited are subject to both human and technical review for the appropriateness of the queries that are being run. If there is a US person query that is going to be run, that has to be approved by my office before it can be run. And every time a US person query is run in our data, that gets reviewed by the Department of Justice. A copy of all those query records goes to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. There is extraordinary scrutiny at every step of the process, at the front-end targeting, at the query, and then the reporting. You'll see in the ASTR, you'll also see some statistics about the volume of reports that are issued each year, in particular, again, given the privacy and civil liberties concerns, the number of reports that include masked U.S. person identities and the number of times NSA is asked to unmask an identity. You might want to explain that. For a, the minimization word is used a lot. And I don't think a lot of people fully grasp what that means. And then explain exactly what the masking and unmasking means. Uh, 
because that became quite controversial uh, a number of years ago with a variety of requests being made uh, by the administration. Yeah, so minimization is a concept that goes all the way back to the earliest days of FISA when the law was passed in 1978. And what the law does is it requires that there be a set of procedures that will minimize the collection and retention of U.S. person information and prohibit the dissemination of U.S. person information unless it's necessary to understand the intelligence. So this set of procedures, we have, we have court-approved procedures that are part of our annual renewal process as we go before the court each year to talk about what's been done under 702 and to request approval for using 702 for the upcoming year. We have a set of minimization procedures that tell us exactly how to handle information. We actually have multiple sets of procedures. So there's query procedures, there's targeting procedures, there's minimization procedures. So our minimization procedures tell us exactly how to handle that information with an eye towards minimizing any collection at the front end, limiting retention, and prohibiting dissemination unless it's necessary to understand the foreign intelligence. So typically in NSA reporting, remember we stand at the source of the nation and we look out, we are a foreign intelligence agency. In most instances, well, in all instances, our report for, focuses on the foreign intelligence. In most instances, it is, if there is any reason to have a reference to a US person, it is what we call masked. And so the emphasis will be on you know, foreign entity XYZ planning an external operation directed against the interests of a US facility overseas, for example. Any reference to a US person or entity in most cases is masked, which means that you won't find a name in that intelligence report. It'll literally be listed as US person one or US company one. And then if there is a need for the recipient of the intelligence information to get that identity in order to understand or assess the intelligence, they can come back to NSA, which has a set of processes that we apply to determine whether or not that identity can be released just to that requester. I'll give you an example. We might issue a foreign intelligence report that is related to a planned assault by an international terrorist organization on the facilities of a U.S. company overseas. We would report that in appropriate classified channels to the U.S. government agencies that receive our reporting, and an agency like the FBI might receive that report and say, aha, perhaps I need to warn the U.S. company that their facility is the subject of a planned attack by an international terrorist organization. The FBI can't make that warning if they don't know the identity of the company. And they could then send in a request to NSA and say, can you give us that identity so we can determine what follow-on steps we should take? So that's what masking is. It's releasing reports that say things like USP1 or US Company 1. And unmasking is the process by which authorized recipients of that intelligence can come back to NSA and say, we need, we need to understand who that is so we can take follow-on action. Great. So, because we're dealing with humans and machines, there are inevitable errors. There have been a number of FISA opinions, there's been a DNI reports, and there's been, you know, theories and emissions of violations dealing with unauthorized access, attorney-client privilege, query violations, dissemination violations and data retention violations in these reports. But can you give us a, a much more concrete 
sense, because we discussed this earlier before you came up, what is your research about the nature, number of these violations and how have they been dealt with? Yeah, it's, it's such an important question. And for a little bit of context, every six months, DOJ and ODNI issue a compliance reports specifically on 702. Those reports run about 100 pages. Every six months, they are full of information about trends, about statistics, about corrective steps that are taken. So there is a wealth of information that is publicly available on this. To more directly answer your question, what we find is that people make mistakes. And because people make mistakes, we have an incredibly robust sense of human controls and technical controls to identify those mistakes when they happen and to be able to take swift and, and, um, and at times appropriate severe corrective action when those mistakes happen. First, the mistakes. If you look at those compliance reports, you'll see that there are references to things like the kinds of mistakes you can imagine. Somebody is fat-fingering something into a system and inadvertently mistypes something. This is simple human error. Um, and those errors take place against a backdrop in which anybody who works for this authority in NSA is required to take comprehensive training every year and undergo competency testing every year. They must pass a test every year showing that they understand the rules that apply. But nonetheless, errors can happen. And in any robust compliance system, I would expect errors to be identified. That's what compliance systems do. They identify errors when they happen. In terms of intentional misuse, though, it's extraordinarily rare. We responded to a similar question back in um, 2013 from Senator Grassley, who wanted to know about instances of intentional use of the SIGINT system. And that question wasn't confined solely to SIGINT, it was SIGINT broadly. And as they did a review of its records and determined that over the course of the previous decade, there had been a dozen instances of what appeared to be intentional misuse of the SIGINT system. So that's a dozen in a decade. Now, when there is any instance of intentional misuse, or what has the potential to be intentional misuse, it is addressed quickly. The consequences are swift. They can be severe. They can include loss of a clearance, loss of, loss of a job. Non-compliance under FISA can carry with it criminal penalties. So all of these things are taken incredibly seriously. However, that kind of thing is quite rare. What we tend to see are the ways in which this comprehensive set of people, processes, and technology that underpin our compliance systems are able to identify errors when they arise and address them quickly with whatever remedial action to include reporting needs to take place. And they are always reported upon recognition promptly through a range of overseers, including the Department of Justice, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. One of the other issues, and I'll open up to the audiences, and it, it's really not in your, I think, wheelhouse, but one of the issues that is raised is that somehow 702 is used as a backdoor to the Fourth Amendment, and that agencies are not using the traditional probable cause. And as you know, in many of the reforms that are being suggested is a request of probable cause for the second level of search of particular <coughs> citizens, even though the data has been, from the perspective of the law, been acquired lawfully. 
Do you have any sense of that? Do you have an opinion about that? Is What's your sort of general sense about that issue? Yeah, it's an important question. Again, for all the uh, FISA law nerds in the room, of which there might be one or two, you know if you follow these things in excruciating detail, but all of these significant FISC and FISC Court of Review opinions relating to this authority have been released in redacted form. In one of those opinions from 2018, the FISC specifically looked at the question of whether or not a query had Fourth Amendment implications in its own right. The answer that the court reached relying on precedent from the Enri Directives case in the FISCAR was no, that indeed a query as such was not an action that needed to pass Fourth Amendment muster standing alone. That instead the appropriate standard to apply to the government action with 702 was reasonableness under the totality of the circumstances. And so in looking at that reasonableness under the totality of the circumstances, it was essential to look at the entire framework, starting from the premise that we have this comprehensive statutory regime that identifies precisely what the government is allowed to do, that sets up oversight from all three branches of government, the executive branch, the executive, and the judiciary, and that requires frequent return to the court for renewal of certifications and, and many, many, many steps of oversight. In that context, once data is collected and then it is queried subject to query procedures that have been approved by the FIS, that that whole set of parameters is what supports the reasonableness of queries under 702. And it's a really, really important framing because there are, if, if you think about it in a broader sense, it is not typically the case in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and other contexts that data already in the possession of the government, already lawfully acquired by the government, then requires a warrant for further review. That happens in some instances, but it is not commonly the case in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. And of course, most Fourth Amendment case law is in the criminal law context, we have a whole long line of Supreme Court and other precedent making clear that national security is different than criminal, than criminal law jurisprudence, and that the government's interests are particularly heightened in the national security context. So for all of those reasons, I think that the framework that we have, well, doesn't really matter what I think. A court has said the framework that we had have really does pass muster, uh, not only under the statutory requirements, but under the Fourth Amendment as well. So with that, oh, wonderful. thank you so much for thank you. Thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.